in um, our app and the class is filling up relatively quickly. And so uh, we'll just go ahead and, and kind of start, but you know, Mike and Brad, I actually will start with Mike. Mike, can you introduce yourself and then, you know, that'll kind of start the conversation a little bit. Sure. I'm Mike T. Nelson. I have a PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Minnesota and a master's in mechanical engineering from Michigan Tech. And I teach also online for Globe University. I'm in a room with really weird lighting, so if I look kind of bizarre, that's my excuse. <laughs> and Brad, what of all the things that you've got on your resume, can you give us a short sample? Yeah, so um, I'm very similar to Mike. I got my PhD in exercise physiology. Um, I got my master's in biomechanics. Um, and right now I'm doing a, a research fellowship looking at uh, metabolism and chronic disease. So um, I do a lot of research in diet, metabolism, disease, obesity, um, all sorts of things. So um, I do research at a lot of different levels, animals, cells, uh, biostatistics. So um, pretty much the full gamut. Yeah, and what, what I think that a lot of people don't realize about Eat to Perform, you know, they see kind of the public side of things and us making posts and then cloak off videos and stuff like this. But kind of the background of, of what we wanted to do was kind of have like this entertainment piece, um, but really bring you guys, you know, why science is important and why, you know, understanding some level of the research, you know, makes some sense. And so... Rather than kind of go into, you know, why that's all important, we're just going to under, we're just going to go with the assumption that you believe that taking a scientific approach is of value to your life, right? So what we sort of talked about in our um, last show was kind of a basic overview of why if you're trying to lose fat, that coming from a place where caring for yourself as a priority is a real big thing. And it, it's not just from the standpoint of, you know, something Paul says to get 1.5 people fired up on a Monday morning, right? It really genuinely is something that if you're constantly focusing on down, 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 that it can negatively affect you. And so Brad, why don't you just kind of lead off, because I know that you had a few things that, that you wanted to talk about that um, some of the research that, that you were doing for this show that was kind of interesting to you, and so I'll just let you take over. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's just a lot of very interesting research that's come out, you know, as we're kind of facing a lot of these health issues in, in the scientific world, you know, of um, rising obesity rates and heart disease and cancer and things like that is, you know, there's a big push, especially in our industry from the weight loss aspect. Um, and over the last 40 or 50 years, a lot of research has explored not just the physiological mechanisms, but, you know, what happens to your mental psyche? What happens to, you know, a lot of these processes as we go through these periods? And, you know, I'm a, I kind of like to follow the history of science too. And, the very first real starvation study, and Mike and I have talked about this a lot, was the starvation experiment in Minnesota that Ansel Keys did. And um, he wrote, it was like a thousand pages of, of his research, but probably the most interesting to me out of it was the psychological aspects. And if you kind of dug through a lot of it was, 
you know, the most stark thing that I noticed from the research was that all of these men um, that went through these starvation studies, they their view of the world completely shifted where they became really preoccupied with their food and it became a central focus and they started to lose interest in all the other things in life and they were lethargic and they were tired and they didn't really care about a whole lot else. All they really focused on was, you know, the food aspect and how uncomfortable they were. So, so I just want to interrupt you for just a second because I think that there's a really important part of the starvation study that people need to know because these were men that basically could not go to war and mm -hmm. their baseline was, I believe it was set at 3,700 and then ultimately the starvation figure, which is almost hilarious when you consider how people eat today was 1600 and you know we've definitely had conversations with um, Dr. Stephen Blair you know fitness versus fatness where you know, the amount of activity that we were doing at that point as farmers and industrial workers and things of that nature really dramatically shifted and what Brad is sort of focusing on and I'll let him take over again is a lot of dieting culture sort of started right at the Ansel Keys time because we were sort of moving from this idea of industrial into more of a service economy. So I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I thought that was an important yeah. piece. No, that's, that's a very good historical context. So um, that kind of explains a lot of why the, the calorie, this semi-starvation diet was, um, I think it was in the paper about, 1800 calories a day um, and people range from 16 to, to 19 um, to 2000 and that you know all these people saw these these symptoms and when you kind of put them all together you know a preoccupation with one thing a loss of interest of everything else um, lethargy those are all if you put them together kind of symptoms of typical depression um, and that's something that I think a lot of times goes underappreciated um, just the things that happen when you become preoccupied and it may not even be the most physiological things where you know lower calories causes all these things it may even just be the the mental aspect of knowing of what you're trying to do with food and i think that's a really um, important piece historically um, to think about and um, to kind of carry on from there you know there's been a lot of other recent research um, kind of looking, you know, since bariatric surgery. There was well, Brad, can you just hold on one second, though? Because one, one of the things that Mike always brings up that I think is really interesting, you know, is not so much just how much it changed those people, but how much, you know, visual representations of food. They clung to that like so big time. And I remember that from my intermittent fasting days, right? And and I've sort of made an argument for some level of fasting, but the argument that I always make is a lot different than the way that most people view it. I view it more as a strategy. But when I wasn't viewing it as a strategy and I was sort of using myself as a way of experimenting, I remember making lists of food that I was going to eat at 1.30. You know what I mean? And becoming obsessive and these types of things were not really part of my life and allowing myself to kind of get to that point and realizing wow that's that's not good you know and I think that 
you know, we all have our aesthetic goals, but really there's got to be like this middle place where you're allowing for the progress that you want to see, but also kind of allowing yourself to not go into this dark spot because, you know, that less, less, less thing, you know, whether, you know, and I know that some of the research that you guys were probably looking at wasn't 100% clear whether it's chicken or egg, you know, did, did, did someone start off depressed and then, you know, kind of this less, less, less model kind of drove them even further down. But I think when you look at society in general, what you see massively is that people are struggling with their identity as it relates to body composition, as it relates to self-worth and dieting is not helping, you know? So Mike, can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the imagery and stuff like that? Cause I always thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at the university of Minnesota, which was where Anso Keys was. And obviously I wasn't there when he was there. Um, but we still have one of the old scales from his lab and down in one of the buildings, we've got a bunch of old equipment from when he was there. Um, but you're correct. That was the, the thing that always stood out to me was that um, some of the people in the group went so literally nutso about foods is that they started to have, the story was the one of the professors I had at the University of Minnesota actually worked under Ansel Keys at the time. And he was telling us all these stories and said that the the prisoners or the objectors who were in the study would clip out little pictures of food and they would keep them like in a little scrapbook. And that after a while that they were going so bonkers and would get in over fights over pictures of food that they had to start banning cookbooks and magazines and stuff like that. And when you talk to him, even after they got done, so they stopped the, the study, anecdotally, the, a few of the subjects were basically just still crazy, you know, that they, they took them, they got their, you know, body weight, you know, back up a little bit where they were several months after the trial has been over. And what he was saying is that a couple of them were still just, they had that, that feeling that their food was going to be restricted at any point and that it was more a psychological issue for some of them than it was a physiologic issue. Yeah, and I think that that kind of is a great bridge to the next part of the discussion where um, what we really are talking about is kind of playing with fire, right? And, you know, we're not saying that you would never address fat loss in some way, shape, or form, or you'd never want to change your behaviors because I think whenever we talk you know it's interesting Mike you know in talking to Tracy Mann you know she you know also you know runs the eating lab at, at the University of Minnesota um, she also talks about you know the starvation study and you know it is kind of interesting because when you when you go get body fat tested at the University of Minnesota you know I live in Minnesota and so you get body fat tested at the Ansel Keys you know, yeah. <laughs> at the Hansel Keys lab. And what, what is interesting about it is just that there was a lot of experimentation, even experimentation that was being done, you know, with like the president of the United States based on, oh, yeah. yeah, based on the, the research that Ansel Keys was doing. And so there, there was, there was not really this, this great understanding. And I think a lot of people were, were sort of struggling figuring out, 
you know, where, where to go and not realizing the implications from a, from a mental standpoint. But I think, you know, so Brad, I'm going to let you kind of take over and talk a little bit about, you know, that it can be a life and death issue for some people, you know, and, and I know you have, you know, one thing that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, I guess there's two things, you know, Paul, you brought up one thing that was really important and, um, kind of, you know, in, in the last podcast, you guys talked about kind of the hating yourself lean thing. Um, one of the things that we know is, you know, when you look through the, the weight loss literature is kind of the, the self-effective scales and basically what you think about yourself and what you love about yourself, um, doesn't change as drastically with weight loss as most people would assume. Um, and that the idea of, you know, chasing the lower number on the scale is going to bring you some ultimate happiness is, is not really kind of the, the ultimate goal of what we should attain. And just, that's something I want people to kind of just think about is, you know, it's, You've got to kind of love yourself first before you go down that road. You know, I, I have to, I have to interrupt you, Brad, because honestly, that yeah. was such an important part of my journey. You know, as somebody that started off at 230 pounds, you know, got as low as 150, and that was that was kind of really low for me. And then now, ultimately, at 175, the one thing that that did allow me to get some level of success and just keep kind of experimenting with what you know worked that ultimately landed me to, to what actually did work was really that place of love, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that if you don't have, and I know it sounds, you know, we're talking about science and we're talking about research and stuff like this, but we also talking a little bit about like a bad relationship with food and orthorexia and eating disorders and all these types of things that are not thing. I mean, when you're talking about changing your relationship with food, you really have to think long and hard about whether or not, you know, um, just going on a diet with just chicken and kale or just going on a juice diet, whether or not you're messing with some kind of chemistry that ultimately is going to affect you negatively. And so I, I, I'm sorry I keep interrupting you, but I keep thinking of the meme where, you know, you have like the one person and they're, they're, they're kind of heavier set and, and, you know, then the very next scene is that person um, thinner, and then the caption is, "Nope, that wasn't it, right?" And I, I think that a lot for a lot of people, they think that solving, you know, accumulated fat on their body will solve everything in their life, and you know that's just really not true. You can you can be you can have a good relationship with yourself and food now and gradually work, you know, to a place of, of health and, and, and you're more likely to get there and stay there than really get to a point where, you know, you're going to go all in for 30 days and you're going to somehow land in that magical spot, you know? So, but go ahead. Yeah. And you know, you, you brought up the, the comment about you're playing with fire. Um, you know, one thing that and this is kind of a, a hits home personally with me because I have experience in my family with this, but there's with the, the aspect of, you know, severe, significant weight loss and bringing happiness is there's research out there and there's been at least one paper published where they've taken people who were, you know, extremely obese and they got bariatric surgery 
um, that led to some, some pretty substantial weight loss. And they actually found that suicide rates among those people were quite a bit higher um, than their overweight or obese counterparts who didn't get bariatric surgery. And I, the mechanisms behind why that might be um, have been argued about whether it's, you know, just the, the psychological pressure from the surgery, whether it's changes in some gut hormones that modulate brain activity. Um, you know, we don't really know for sure, but just that data right there is, is pretty powerful in just showing that, you know, trying to take extreme measures to achieve a number on a scale um, doesn't is not the best thing psychologically. And, you know, while there are some health issues with, you know, being overweight and things like that is um, those other things of playing with fire are important things to think about. So Mike, from the standpoint of, of, of brain and body fat, obviously a lot of the research related to leptin, you know, would show that there is a connection. Can you, you know, make some sense of that for people so, so we can have like in a, in a normal person's way, <laughs> like it's, you know, I mean, the one thing awesome, I'll just, I'll just tell you guys, you know, one of the reasons why, why Brad and Mike are the guys that, that you're listening to right now is very easy for just PhDs to just kind of just nerd out and then just bore the hell out of you guys. And Mike and Brad are really great at conveying their message, but also keeping you guys awake. Yeah, so real briefly, so I'm not going into too much detail, but leptin is one of the hormones that basically tells you from a, a slightly longer time course where your body fat level kind of is at any one point in time. And as those levels change, they're unfortunately trying to, you can think of leptin as an evil hormone that may be trying to prevent you from losing weight loss or losing weight. That's probably a dramatic oversimplification, but... In the rat studies, as Brad knows, initially when they found it, they thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We found this hormone. We know in rats it's directly related to how big the rats get. We show the difference between the big fat leptin rat and the smaller rat. And they thought, oh, this is great. So they thought, well, we'll give them humans. We'll just normalize their leptin levels, right? We'll just trick their body or their brain into thinking that we've, we've fixed all the issues. And what they found was that there's a problem most likely with the leptin receptor. So just like, just because you have the key to get into your apartment and something gets bungled on your lock, it's not going to work so well. So there's also the, the hormone itself and the receptor. And with leptin, that seems to be the issue. Um, further with exercise, People look at exercise from just a caloric sort of drain standpoint, and they're like, ah, it doesn't seem to do a whole lot if you just simplify calories in, calories out. And some of the newer research shows, however, that exercise works really well to help sort of fix up certain areas of the brain that control caloric intake, meaning that they're able to help regulate caloric intake better. So, for example, if you had a group that just lost a bunch of weight with a diet only and didn't change their exercise, their adherence or their ability to keep that weight off is not nearly as good as people who then would do exercise. So one of the things, obviously, from you know, calories, metabolism helps. But the newer research shows that the exercise itself may be changing those areas of the brain that help you basically re-regulate calories better 
once you get down to the weight that you want to be at. So there's multiple mechanisms at play that all kind of work together. Well, I think one of the, the you know, in the beginning of my discussions with Mike, in our communications, he was always making the point that there is a direct connection between metabolism and muscle. And that, you know, as you sort of pursued, you know, kind of the building side of things, that that was going to be fairly positive. And, and obviously, you know, when you tested in a lab and all these other types of things, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, I remember the, the conversation that we had with, with Lane Norton, where he talked about, um, and, and that's, you know, I have to tell you guys, there might only be 50 people that ever listen to this, but this is my dream come true. My dream come true was researching all this information that people did not know. And one of the things that Lane brought up, because Lane is a bodybuilder, he's a PhD doctor, you know, kind of similar to what we're talking about. And what's great about knowing all these guys is the amount of research that they can bring to the table. And so when you have a question, you can answer that question or ask that question. But so Mike brought up the idea of, of muscle and how favorable that is as it relates to, you know, uh, you know, at the time we were talking a lot about adrenal fatigue. That was everybody wanted to talk about adrenal fatigue and and whether that even was a thing, right? That you know, a lot of people throw out adrenal fatigue as if it's like a known fact. When you know, if you look at kind of the way that the body naturally works, you know, Lane brought what I thought was an amazing um, comparison where he was talking about a 220-pound um, bodybuilder. And within two weeks of dieting, they put the bodybuilder in a metabolic cart. And it, well, actually, they did it twice, before he started dieting and then once he started dieting. And two weeks in, his metabolism was almost in half. And I thought, wow, you know, First of all, the good majority of people don't even know what a metabolic cart is. They don't even know that that's, you know, a thing. They're certainly not aware. Like if you talk to people in general, they think that their metabolism is static. It is not. It's dynamic. And, and you have control over a lot of this stuff. And when you're talking about this and you're trying to figure out, well, how can I, you know, like in the case of this bodybuilder, you know, who, who may have been dieting a little bit too much for shows, you know, that's a big sign. And my guess is, you know, through, you know, his, his interaction with Lane that he fixed it. He didn't go, Oh, let me destroy my metabolism even worse. You know what I mean? And this is someone with a lot of information in front of them. Someone with, you know, a good understanding so when you think of the good majority of people that go, oh, I would never want to check the scale or I wouldn't want to know my body fat percentage or, you know, it's really not knowing those things or not knowing those things. It's really the expectation of what those things tell you, right? And if you can divorce yourself from that data, that data is important, you know? And what, what I think is interesting is as I started to get together with researchers about my health, 
you know, and a lot of our early discussions with Mike. Once you start learning, it's addictive. You know, you realize, oh my goodness, I just solved three of the biggest problems of my life. I wonder if I could solve more. And then you start to realize, and so when I say like this is just like a, a gift for me, you know, that's what I mean is I feel like what we're talking about is basic stuff that you guys know that the good majority of people don't know. And it is kind of simple, right? Um, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of metabolism 101, Mike? I mean, the, you know, I mean, <laughs> just like the elevator story on metabolism. Yeah, so real quick, I think the key points with that is, in my biased opinion, that there's two things to look at, uh, the amount of your metabolism, and then also what fuel you're using. So at rest, you primarily want to be using fat, and ideally you'd like to have a, a higher metabolism. Um, if we estimate your what's called the resting metabolic rate, the equations for that are pretty good in general, looking at your height and body size and things of that nature. And that's how many calories it takes you just to do absolutely nothing at all. And that actually should be primarily from fat. Although during low intensity exercise in the lab, I've seen a fair amount of those people be using primarily carbohydrates. Um, obviously exercise is a component, not as big as we think. Um, the bigger component is actually NEAT. So non-exercising activity thermogenesis, it's a big long fancy word. But you know how much you walk around and how much your step count and things that you do during the day. It's like the new watches, I have a basis, but Fitbits, things like that, make it pretty easy to keep track of your general movements during the day. And the last one is the thermic effect of, of feeding, which is relatively consistent based on the number or amount of macronutrients that you eat. So over time, we want our metabolism to actually slightly go up. And we can influence that a little bit by exercise, a fair amount by just general movement. And then the big thing is, as you actually eat slightly more, your metabolism will actually start to go up. So a lot of people, I think, really miss that point, which is very key. Now, it may not go up enough to completely ameliorate any gain in weight. So if you go down to Domino's and destroy two pizzas, your metabolic rate is not going to magically go up to, to probably match that. But if you do it methodically, it will kind of slowly go up over time. And like Paul was saying too, as you start to then cut back, once you get to a point that's higher, the downside that we don't have a lot of research on is how fast does your metabolism then slightly go back down again? At some point it will bottom out. I mean, you're not going to be walking around with the metabolism of you know, 500 calories or anything. Um, but in some people we have seen, and there's a little bit of research as you talked about to show this, but some people, as you start to cut their calories a little bit, their metabolism drops really fast. Um, other people, that doesn't happen. So it's much easier for them to see more weight loss. Lane did talk about that. And he said, yep. it, he said it was anecdotal on his part, but he said he'd seen it so many times that it, it, he just considers it fact. That yeah. the and more... He really works with people that are extreme competitors who've done lots of very extreme stuff in the past too. Yeah, no, and and I get that, but but we do know For that. Yeah, but we do know that if you're listening to this, and if you've been on a diet since you were 12 years old, 
your rate of recovery for the way that Lane said it was so beautiful. He said, the more you've been dieting, the the more difficult it's going to be to recover from dieting. And yep. the, the simple fact of the matter is, is you, I, I can't remember. There was somebody that suggested there was a, there was a drinking game. Um, based on all of the cliches I use, and I don't remember if it was the simple fact of the matter, but the simple fact of the matter is one of the ones that you could use a, a drinking game. But, but yeah, I, I think that you know people aren't aware of of the repercussions of constantly getting to this point, right? But kind of you know moving from that, I think that when you started to see the reality TV shows. I, I was listening to this talk radio host and he was talking about when he saw, what is the stream, the, the Jillian Michaels one? What is it? Biggest Loser? Yeah, yeah. So he said, the biggest loser, he said when he saw that on TV, all he could think about was how abusive it was to these people and that there's no way that this is going to be allowed to be on television. For, and and not only has it been allowed to be on television, but many of those people who I believe are abusing these people, you know, ultimately have become like huge stars and role models in the fitness world. And what you don't see and what most people don't know is that there is suicide rates there. There are many people that kind of talk about, hey, look, you're not seeing the whole point. It's sort of interesting that they've never really ever been transparent. And it's almost amazing that they don't have to be transparent as it relates to the amount of calories these people are eating. You know, I know that there's it a research study on it that shows it's very low calorie and extremely high amounts of work. Yeah. And, and and I think that a lot of people listening to this are are going, yeah, but they need that, right? Because they're in such bad shape that they're not going to get healthy otherwise. And that's where I think Dr. Dr. Blair's research is so important. Because what Dr. Blair is saying is, is that when you add activity to the mix, you can actually carry a certain amount of body fat and still, you know, have a level of health. You know, because, I mean, he used himself as an example that, you know, he wasn't like, you know, Mr. Eight-Pack Ab Guy. You know, I think he, I think he's 76. He walks 13,000 steps a day. I mean, his 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 brain is obviously phenomenal. Um, and I, I think that, you know, these are the types of, of, of things that we're sort of pitting against each other. What we're trying to expose to people is that this idea of snuggling up to, you know, less all the time does have consequences. And, you know, orthorexia, as an example, was something you never heard about. And now all of a sudden, you see this in real life all the time, where you start mentioning a cupcake, and someone will freak out on your ass. You know what I mean? 
And it's like, whoa, what the hell just happened? And you realize that like their relationship with food is is very different, you know. And even, you know, for for myself as someone that that you know like, you know, I almost have to apologize that eating whole foods was such a big part of my journey, right? Because, you know, I I I don't believe in evil foods and I don't believe that that's a healthy way of approaching it. Actually, the best I've ever heard, I've never heard anything better, it came from Mike, is that if you view mostly whole foods as a do, a mostly do, then good. If you view it as a mostly don't, that's a pitfall. And you can run into some, some real problems. I mean, any thoughts on, on that side of things? Because I think that, you know, I'm, I don't want to necessarily... You know, I mean, unless you guys have some research that says, you know, going from, you know, super clean eating, super low calorie, you know, can naturally lead to eating disorder type behavior, right? But if, you know, it, it was sort of like what we talked about earlier from the chicken and egg perspective, what if you're a vulnerable person? Right. And then you snuggle up to this. It could be the spark that lights the, you know, lights the fire. Any, any thoughts on that, Brad? Yeah, well, I think you brought up you brought up a lot of good points. And there's I kind of want to touch on a few of them. Um, I guess I'll just answer them in kind of reverse order. They were brought up. So the idea of, you know, Paul, you mentioned orthorexia and um, the freaking out over a cupcake. You know, one of the things we do know from um, a lot of psychology literature, and there's a good, there's a really good book, and it's it's more about athlete, athletes and kind of college athletes and stuff. It's called Blackboards and Backboards and Blackboards, but it's basically this idea of we start to identify ourselves as certain things, um, and athletes do it all the time. There's also research in, in the food psychology world of you know, you start to identify yourself as a very specific person, right? You start to view yourself as the paleo person or as the I never eat dessert person. And it becomes not just something you do, but who you are. And that definitely leads to a lot of behaviors that are very hard and resistant to change. And that's one of those things why you know, <coughs> having more of, you know, like Mike's view, um, view it as mostly a do is a win. So that's something I think that's really important is people – Try to remember that the food you eat are not who you are, um, because if you let them define who you are, it completely changes the game for how you view everything else. But that's, I, I, that's something I, I think is really important. I, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to interrupt you, but I think that there's an important part because I think that there's a lot of people that mirror my journey that that lost a lot of weight, and I remember, you know, the fear, and I still have it to this day. You know, I mean, this idea that you know, you get fit and you lose a lot of weight and you never think of it ever again is incorrect. But when we talk about, you know, eating clean or eating mostly whole foods, I think it's natural to cuddle up to the fear that I will gain weight. Sort of, sort of kind of, Mike said it in jest, right, about the whole two Domino's pizza, but when someone eats a piece of pizza and they've come from a restrictive background 
now all of a sudden they make the connection that that piece of pizza is actually going to cause them to gain weight. And if you're eating that piece of pizza, it might actually be the thing that's actually helping you in that moment. And from that standpoint, I don't think calories get enough credit, right? Where we are human beings, we are meant to thrive. I, I mean, you know, the conversation that we had with Stephen was awesome, but probably the best thing that he said was just simply that if we were eating 3,700 calories before and we stopped doing stuff, why did we then go, oh, let's starve ourselves rather than go, let's start doing more or trying to figure out ways to do more? And frankly, it comes down to convenience. You know what I mean? Like if you run a farm, you know, you had to make sure that the crops got done or, or the cows got milked or whatever it was. And if that didn't happen, you didn't make you didn't make a living. Your family wasn't provided for. Nowadays, I think that we focus too much on food convenience and not enough on the activity component and the positives as it relates to, to metabolism. And so I just wanted I just wanted people to know that I understand the fear of gaining weight when you're eating an energy dense food. But at the same time, some level of energy density also does allow for better workouts, also does allow for you to, to have a mentally better approach to food sometimes. And so I, want, I thought that was important to say. Yeah, and you know, Paul, that's such a perfect point because I think a lot of times people view themselves as the only people going through this. And there's a lot of people, you know, myself included, have gone through that, that mentality and that journey. Um, and you know, just one more thing to add, you know, when you, we talk this about this a, a lot, the less, less, less idea and how it's really uh, not the best approach. When you really think about it at some point, it also becomes um, not an option, right? You can't continue to go less, less, less. And even the research shows that, you know, once you hit a certain point, taking away any more doesn't have any benefit in terms of, you know, even if we just take at it from just a strict weight loss standpoint, um, once you hit a certain calorie threshold, continuing to go even less, less, less um, also doesn't, doesn't answer the question. Um, so that's something else that people, besides the, the psychological aspects, besides all those things is it's also just not the, it's also just not an answer for problem anyway um so mike i want to you know I, and i know that this is a little bit kind of a, a touchy subject but you know one of the things that's sort of interesting to me is that people often think of eating disorders you know i i guess i'll, I'll just speak for myself you know when i thought of eating disorders i typically thought of females and when coming into eat reform it really changed my opinion, you know, and I realized that men struggle with this, you know, in a way that's very similar to, to women and, and that gets discounted a lot. I think that the want for ideal physique 
can be confusing. Like one of the things that, that, you know, a natural bodybuilder friend of mine said one time, he said, you know, in my bulking season, I feel like the Hulk. And he's like, and when I start cutting, I feel like I never lifted a weight in my life, you know? And, you know, I think what he was really sort of pointing out was, cause it, you know, um, is why people kind of gravitate towards performance enhancing drugs in, in, in a lot of communities because you want to use that trump card to kind of make up for some, some deficiencies. Like as an example, if you're under eating and you're in a situation like my friend who you know is doing obviously the right thing and staying away from you know, these things that could potentially harm him. But he's also not reaching the level that other people competing against him are, right? And maybe they're not being completely honest about that. Now, all of a sudden, okay, you're either using performance-enhancing drugs or maybe you're not, right? But you don't have any energy, so you're like mainlining caffeine just to get in a workout. And now all of a sudden, we just fucked up everything, <laughs> right? For what? Abs? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just going to tell you, you know, I think that there gets to be, I mean, what are you guys' thoughts on the overall control level of the way that someone thinks that struggles with eating disorders does that does that mean anything to you like the 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 because that's the thing that i always hear is that they're trying to hold on to some level of control and and i'm just trying to make that connection or see if there is even a connection yeah my my guess on this, I haven't looked at any research, is that if they haven't been able to control their weight and they don't feel like they've had any success with it, and most people it's trying to lose weight, they then feel like they don't have any control over their weight. The, and it's anecdotal that most of the people I've seen who have a good relationship with their body, whatever you know, body fat levels, wherever their physique is at, are usually the people that also feel like they have a lot of control over it. So my good friend, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, who is, you know, professor, has competed in uh, bodybuilding shows, you know, so his weight has fluctuated, you know, at times, maybe almost 40 pounds within a year. He's done multiple shows in the past. But for him, weight isn't really an issue. He's like, because if I wanted to add, you know, five, 10 pounds a little bit, I could. You know, he's like, I probably don't plan to do another show, but if someone said, hey, we'll give you a huge amount of money or something like that to do a show next year, I would know exactly what to do. Um, so it seems like when uh, really people compete in weight classes, things of that nature, who may not look, you're looking at them, you may not think they're at the body composition of whatever you or society or whatever thinks they should be. A lot of times if they're not worried about it is the people who have control. They know that if I wanted this to be a priority in my life, you know, I could drop a few pounds safely each week over whatever, a couple months. And then 
it wouldn't be a big deal. They wouldn't have to do anything drastic. They wouldn't have to do anything crazy because they've been there and they have the skill set. It seems like the people who <clears throat> don't have that skill set, they try to do some stuff, and maybe not the best stuff, and they assume that, oh my gosh, i got to be more and more extreme in order to try to gain that control to get that ability over their weight. So that's my guess. I mean, that's a really smart yeah. guess. I mean, and, and I really think that, that a lot of people listening to what you just said are going ding, 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 because it's yeah. their lack of control that ultimately is leading down this path of, yep. of extremes. Now, one of the things that I think, you know, we should talk about is this idea of plateauing. And I know that, you know, it seems like a relatively simple concept. And, you know, from a scientific standpoint, it's not particularly exciting. But I remember, you know, and, and I can't remember it specifically right now, and, and you guys might be able to remember it better. But when Alan Aragon talked about plateauing, the way that he described it, do you know what I'm talking about, Mike? Because you're shaking your head, but yep. so go ahead and 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 give kind of Alan's yeah. point of view, and we'll we'll try and have Alan on the show because we all sort of know him a little bit. Yeah, I know Brad's been talking to him, but um, so his point, I definitely agree with, and I probably haven't tried to sold this in the past too, is that when you're losing, so you start here and go down a little bit. Uh oh, now you're stuck in another plateau. And everyone like freaks out and loses their minds at the plateau. But one, that's part of physiology. That's like my pet peeve. Because if you look at actual, real, sustainable weight loss, even if you look in some extreme cases, it doesn't look like a straight linear line. Kind of goes down, goes up a little bit, goes down, plateau, goes down. And his argument, which I agree with, is that eventually you want to be at a plateau. Just at a lower level from where you're at because by virtue of definition being at a plateau means that it's easier to sustain there right you can get into engineering control systems and all sorts of stuff but in english it means that you can have more and more inputs and outputs and the output doesn't fluctuate a lot you can you know do little things you don't have to you know log everything to the 10th degree all the time and you'll still be okay you'll stay at around the same body composition so it's worth explaining to clients that when they reach a plateau it's not necessarily a bad thing that's actually where they want to be in the end just at a little bit lower level do you have any follow-up on to add to that any anything to add to that brad no i just i think it's that's very well put you know the the plateau is kind of the end game for all of us um and at some point you know it's you want to you want to get to a point where you can be sustainable and you can kind of live your life and be at a plateau. Um, and that it's just like an analogy to everything else in life, right? The path is not always linear, whether it's, you know, strength gains, weight loss, um, job careers, you know, anything it's things are going to be stable for a while. And then something's going to change. One of the inputs is going to change and the trajectory will change. Um, and, so I really don't have much else to add. So so just kind of going back to my conversation with Tracy, as I read her book, one of the things that that in in you know her book is Secrets from the Eating Lab, and she really advocate well she's 
she she just does not believe in in dieting. She does believe in um, some manner of kind of like habit changing and things of that nature. I actually disagree on some of those points, and we talked about it in a little bit of our our conversation. But in general, you know, with all of this kind of stuff, you have to sort of take what works for you and then kind of adjust to the things that that don't. What I think that we hear a lot about is one of the reasons people are attracted to e-perform is it feels like we're telling them the truth. And often the way that people are marketed to as it relates to weight loss, fat loss, you know, it comes off as almost, you know, kind of a fairy tale because it is, you know. But what, what Tracy talked about and I think that this is a real important discussion to have is when you say that diets are the problem right and and we are sort of making the case that diets are a little bit of the problem right and or at least at least you know just snuggling up to the extremes has some severe health consequences sometimes if I'm sitting on the other side of this and listening to this podcast right now I'm thinking to myself well, great. I've got, you know, X amount of pounds to use. Now what do I do? Right. And, and, you know, Tracy sort of argues for the, the whole set point theory where you kind of have this, <coughs> this low set point, middle set point, and kind of the, the higher end, um, which can be sort of manipulated. I mean, it should be, you know, brought up that, you know, it is a theory at this point, you know, it's a theory that many of us work from because, you know, it's not only logical, but you sort of see anecdotal evidence from it each day. For instance, with myself, when I was 150 pounds, that would have probably been my low set point, right? And for me to go lower would have caused some extreme health type stuff. And potentially... You know, even at 150, I was sort of seeing that. And, you know, that type of stuff kind of led me to sort of stabilize and, and get to, to where I'm at. But my, my point to this is not that we're saying to you guys, you can't work on fat loss, because obviously we do have a little bit of an answer for that. But what we're making the case for is performance first and being capable as a human being first the thing that just annoys the hell out of me with eat perform is the fact that people go well i'm not an athlete therefore you know what you're saying doesn't apply to me the science of total daily energy applies to everyone and you know it applies to aliens <laughs> you know, it applies to dogs you know it applies to anything and you know when we're talking about, you know, metabolism and, and all these other types of things, you have to realize that you can't do one thing and not have it affect a whole bunch of other stuff, you know? And I can't tell you how many people that we talk to on a daily basis, you know, I mean, I had a, I had a guy come up to me and said, dude, I just want to thank you. You know, you gave me my wife back. And... I mean, that brought me to tears, you know, um, 
because we do see that struggle on a daily basis, right? I mean, you know, and, and you know, when we started Eat to Perform, you know, Mike was kind of early on and, and we, we wanted to have kind of this ultimately what became the Eat to Perform Science Lab where, you know, we would do some level of research, but some level of me-search where you would kind of take, you know, your experience, take it to the gym and, and try and work from there. And that was cool. Um, and then Brad came in and, and brought a lot to the table. And now, you know, he's obviously part of the, the, the group coaching. And we've been able to kind of have that discussion. But I think that Tracy made the case for, you know, there's always a range. I think that when you come at it from the standpoint of I have 40 pounds to use, that's really kind of a wish. And it's really not like, it's it's not how I did mine, you know. And I'm not saying that that you can't potentially lose 40 pounds by going, I have 40 pounds to lose, and therefore I'm going to lose 40 pounds. But I think you're much more likely to be successful with incremental goals and then reassessing once you reach those incremental goals. I know for myself, you know, when I was 230, getting to 215 was pretty easy, right? Um, and as I went from 155 to 150, that was hard as hell, you know? And what was interesting about the 155 to 150 was it was sort of telling me my body didn't want to do that, right? And I listened to my body and ultimately became a 175 pound person. And as a result, I had a lot more muscle on my frame because over time, your body sort of adjusts to this and then you're able to do a lot more work. You know, obviously we work, we focus on the work side of things, but I think people, whatever work is to you, you know, I mean, if you're a grandmother and you're 83 years old and work is walking around the block, cool. Paul, Brad, Mike, we all agree with that. You know, we're, there is no judgment on what you do or how you do it. And from that perspective, the core of Eat to Perform is not fat loss, you know. And I think that when you come in to Eat to Perform and fat loss is first on your list, the first thing we do is try and get a little bit lower, right? And the reason is, is we're in the excitement business. And the reason why we're in the excitement business is that if you're excited about your life on a daily basis and you're coming at things from a place of self-love, it sounds hokey. I get it. You know, it sounds like I'm some kind of hippie and, you know, but, but really, like, if you can't just, like, strip down in front of the mirror and just have that one last cry if you have to, right? But but be done with it, you know? And, and, and I know that that's tough. And I know that I know that struggle a little bit. I can't say I know that personally because I don't know it the way that many of our clients struggle. But, but I can say that if you need to talk to a therapist, you know, I think that that is something that could help a lot of people that don't consider it because they might think that they have a food problem or might think that they have a fat problem, but 
they really have kind of a, a connection problem. Um, I, I did kind of want to end on, on one major point, but I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on kind of that, that line of thinking? Uh, I agree. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so I I know that people are sort of getting tired of this discussion, but I think it it's important because we don't always know who's hearing what and when they hear it, right? But I like to make the connection as it relates to addiction research because as someone that is very familiar with addiction and, and kind of seen it go through my life in terms of like food and a relationship with food. I think that we tend to think of abstinence as the answer for sex addiction or the answer for alcohol addiction or the answer for what is believed to be food addiction, which may be energy addiction, right? So, you know, you have to kind of look through all these things. But what was interesting as they started to study, you know, mice um, and mice that lived in a cage that were given heroin. And they had the option, they lived in this cage, they were, they were alone, and they had the option to be fed or take the heroin and like it wasn't exactly 100%, but it was pretty close to 100% of the mice ended up choosing the heroin and died, right? So then the other part of the experiment was kind of mouse Disneyland, right? Where, you know, there were lady mice and, and families of mice and, and, and the same study was sort of put together where you had you know, the food and the heroin. And some of the mice did choose heroin in that scenario. But it was significantly less when the mice had more options, right? And when you look at drug addiction as it relates to Portugal and some of the places where, you know, all drugs are legal and the way that they've chosen, you know, I was watching this documentary where they were talking about Portugal and this health guru guy, he said, you know, if you're going to legalize all drugs in the United States, he said one thing that you would have to do that we implemented immediately was uh, have a health backup to where, you know, um, you'd be able to kind of address these overlying issues, you know, because, you know, as, as we're talking with the mice, you know, there's a little bit more involved here. But what was interesting and, and the connection that, that they were making in this study and, and kind of the inference was that, and, and this somewhat mirrors my experience with addiction as well, is it wasn't the abstinence that was doing the magic. It was really this connection. And so if you looked at, the, at you know, It's not sobriety that allows someone to recover from anything or abstinence from food or abstinence from sex or whatever. It's really sort of this connection to, to people and being loved and being cared for. And, and, and a lot of that is the way that you internalize that, right? 
And so that's really sort of like the Disneyland mouse scenario where when you have more options and you have a full life and you're focused on a lot of other things, you know, rather than just saying, I have fat to use, that's going to solve all of my problems. Maybe your issue might be sleep. Maybe your issue might be psychology related. Maybe, you know, it, it's, I guess the real point that I'm ultimately trying to make is don't default to the most simplistic answer every single time because it could be nuanced. But I'm just telling you that if you go down the nuanced trail, it it will almost always bear fruit for you. You will learn more about yourself than you really could think that you know. And so I'll sort of end on that note. You guys have any any thoughts before we shut it down? We actually haven't had any any real questions up to this point. And so since since we haven't, I'm just going to try and, you know, uh, assume that that everybody kind of enjoyed the discussion. Well, it was oh, a great okay. chat, Paul. Yeah, I really appreciate, you know, I you know, Mike and Brad, you know, are very busy guys. They do a lot of stuff. You know, Mike's just getting back. Um, are you still in Austin, Mike? I was in Austin this morning. I'm in Dallas right now until Wednesday. So. Okay. And so, um, so yeah, the, you know, for these guys to take the time, I mean, it really, I, I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, people view us as uncaring people, but, you know, for these guys to take their time uh, out of their schedule, it just really shows the level of caring that I think is kind of one of the hallmarks of Eat to Perform. So I appreciate you guys being here, and we'll uh, talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye.